you everyone for tuning in to another episode of the Global Business Alliance's monthly trade policy podcast. This is Kevin Klein with the Global Business Alliance, and I'm pleased to be joined by Cleet Willems from Aiken Gump. Cleet, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thanks for being back. Cleet, as uh, many of you who are listening to the podcast know, Cleet has joined us for many of our trade policy calls. He's been on a couple of the podcasts before, but Cleet has a long and illustrious career in, in D.C. in trade policy, both in and out of the administration. And we're really pleased to have him here today to talk about everything that's going on around the world in trade. And, and there is a lot going on. So we're going to talk about China. We're going to talk about Vietnam. And then we're going to talk about the U.S. Congress and everything that's happening there. Cleet, let's dive into it. Uh, starting with China and everything that uh, has been going on, um, there's always new developments every time we get together to talk about here. Latest news that we're seeing is that the the Trump-China tariffs, the Section 301 tariffs and so forth that were put in place by President Trump and are still in place now are nearing the $100 billion mark, which is kind of a, uh, a milestone one way or another here. And there has been um, discussion uh, on Capitol Hill and, and focus on USTR's China review, whether or not they're going to be able to complete their review of the uh, of Chinese trade policy. And I would love to get your thoughts on where that stands and um, anything else that we should be keeping our eye on vis-a-vis China. Sure. And, uh, you know, there's always a lot going on with, with China. Um, you know, it has been the leading subject in trade for you know, the last couple of years and probably will be for the next few years to come. Um, but maybe I can I can try to sort of talk about the China policy in, in a couple of different buckets. I mean, first, what's going on directly between the U.S. and China and how that might implicate the tariffs. Um, secondly, talk a little bit about some of the um, defensive measures, as you'll call them, that the U.S. has been putting in place on China. And then third, talk about some of the broader regional initiatives that I think have implications for China. So first, talking about the U.S. and China directly, I think, as as you correctly noted, you know, we are still waiting for some more contours and detail about what the Biden administration's policy is going to be with engaging China directly, as well as what they're going to do with the the tariffs that that were in place. And you know, everyone's been talking about the China review, the vaunted China review. You know, I think that. You know, that creates an impression in everyone's mind that at some day they're just going to make a decision and then all of a sudden it's going to be revealed to us and we'll all understand. Um, and I actually think it's going to be much more iterative than that. And things are going to start happening behind the scenes um, that indicate that that they have figured out what their complete policy will be. Um, what I'm expecting in the short term is first, I do think that there are going to be more and more conversations about whether or not the U.S. and China should get together at a, at a leader level. Um, and and whether or not that could be used as a jumping off point to further conversations um, with China about market access. Um, You know, USTR so far has not been keen to really push those uh, initiatives forward, but we now do see the State Department officials meeting with their counterparts in China, um, which could be a precursor to a Biden-Xi meeting this fall, which then could, could lead to those conversations. So I think we're still a ways away from an offensive engagement strategy with China, but it is something I would keep an eye on as we get towards the end of the fall here. I do think what you're going to see action on sooner um, is on the tariffs that you mentioned. And I think a really important point for people to realize 
is that 301 tariffs are not meant to be permanent. They're meant to be temporary measures that you utilize to try to get the other country to change problematic behavior. And these tariffs now have been in place um, for longer than folks anticipated. Um, they've been covering now a broader range of products because all of the exceptions have expired. And I think there's a lot of pressure building um, coming from Congress on the administration to do something about it. And you know what I believe is going on is that the National Security Council is on board with a reexamination and is really pressing USTR to take a fresh look at this and, and that there will be an interagency process in the next couple of months to figure out what are we going to do with tariffs? Are we going to put in place an exception process? Are we going to um, have then a negotiating strategy to try to bring these things down further? And I'm not suggesting it's going to be an easy conversation, um, but I do. I would point folks to some of the public comments that Janet Yellen was making just a couple days ago about how she thought some of the tariffs were actually harmful to the U.S. economy. She will be a key player in this as well, and that suggests to me that you know in the next couple months the administration may come up with some sort of plan on what they want to do in terms of reinstating an exceptions process. So again, mm-hmm. another thing where I'm not expecting it right now, but I think for companies looking towards the fall, you are going to have developments on on both of those issues. But just a question because it's just intriguing. I mean, by by implication that the NEC or, or the White House and and uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen are on board with uh, finishing up that review very quickly. Is there an on-state implication that USTR is not? Is there some friction there? I'm not sure that everyone in the interagency is on the same page. And um, I think that there is a group of folks at the NSC who are more forward-leaning on this stuff. I think the Treasury Secretary has made the world know that she's more forward-leaning on this stuff. The Congress has made their opinion known. Um, and, I, and I do get the impression that those are some of the actors pushing it forward more than USTR. I do think USTR, though, you know, it is in their jurisdiction, and they're ultimately going to have to confront this and implement it um, in the way that the, the White House and interagency decides. Um, yeah. but, but that is my understanding. Okay, very good. I know I've got a long opening here, but there's a lot on China, and I think it's really important for the listeners. The the defensive side of things is sort of what I think of when I think of export controls or I think of investment restrictions, um, when I think of sanctions policy, um, you know, what what some people call sort of the tools of of economic statecraft. Um, I think that area will be predictable, um, but, but incremental tightening on all fronts. And I think if you look at the Biden administration, this is an area where their policy is more evolved than it is on trade. And, and a lot of that makes sense if you look at, you know, sort of Joe Biden's history as, as having focused more on these national security oriented issues throughout his career. If you look at the folks staffing uh, his National Security Council, these are issues they're much more familiar with. And what they've basically decided that they want to do is in many ways continue the policy of the Trump administration of using these tools in a robust way, certainly more robust than we had ever seen, you know, before a couple of years ago, um, but that they want to make them more legally viable. Uh, they want to make the process for determining, you know, who to sanction or who to put on an investment list, um, you know, more um, more subject to a fact-based interagency process, um, but that they want to remain fairly hard-nosed. And so what I'm expecting here is you are just going to continue to see incremental tightening on all three of those areas, sanctions, export controls, and investment restrictions. But I don't expect any sort of big bang events that are going to take everyone by by a ton of surprise. Um, the, the third area, just to touch on then, 
is sort of the agenda that relates to China but isn't directly uh, doesn't directly affect China. And what I mean by that is I'm thinking about um, the the idea of a digital trade pact in the Indo-Pacific region. And this is another area, and and, and folks can read. There was a really good Wall Street Journal piece on this a couple of days ago um, by by Bob Davis that 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 I believe to be wholly accurate, um, which is that again folks in the National Security Council are very interested in looking for some sort of offensive agenda in the region that shows that the U.S. is back, that puts in place disciplines um, that that China doesn't necessarily meet, and creates a regional standard. And I think that digital trade is seen as a good foray uh, into that, both because of the importance of the sector, um, the fact that there are a lot of concerns about China's policies on digital, whether it's you know censorship, surveillance, data collection, and the like. Um, and so I think data localization. So I think this is an area where I think there's going to be a lot of interest, certainly coming from the NSC and State Department. I think USTR um, has been a little more reluctant. You know, they've been focused more on sort of the implementation of USMCA and their worker-centric policies. But I think this is an area where you will see engagement. It's seen as sort of a, a, a way to, to be involved in the region without going all the way back to TPP, at least not now. Um, so that's another area I would watch very closely in the months ahead. Yeah, wow. Um, always a lot going on in regard to China. So thank you for running us through that there. Um, uh, a lot of irons in the fire. So that that's fantastic. Let's switch a little bit, talk about Vietnam. I know this was a, a hot topic on our last live trade policy call. Folks said we're interested in potential tariffs coming in retaliation. Uh, there's a Section 301 investigation uh, regarding v, uh, um, Vietnam's uh, potential currency manipulation. There has now been a joint statement by U.S. Treasury and the State Bank of Vietnam regarding um, rules moving forward to to uh, kind of uh, offset the, the concerns about currency manipulation in Vietnam. But that my understanding is that that does not necessarily mean that the Section 301 investigation and potential tariffs there are off the table, but it sure seems to be a good sign. Um, what's your take on that and, and where do things stand? I think your uh, I think your assessment is is, is largely correct. Um, and that it is clearly a good sign, but it doesn't mean that the 301 is 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 over. Um, and and I think what 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 sig- you know other than the obvious you know public statements from high ranking officials that they got a deal on currency, you know what what I think is important to note is you know that what again what 301 is intended to do is to start to threaten tariffs and then to start a process where you solve a problem um, and therefore tariffs are not needed. Mm-hmm. And here, theoretically, you have the um, you know the U.S. and Vietnamese governments announcing that they have come up with a solution to solve the problem. Now, we'll, I will say on the substance, you know, it is less robust than it could be in the sense that a lot of it is is um, you know reaffirming IMF principles about currency, um, which which folks may remember is actually somewhat similar to what was in the China phase one deal with respect to the US and China. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know that was uh, that was seen as sufficient at that time to sort of stop labeling China a currency manipulator. And I think in this context it is 
potentially significant enough to stop, um, you know, going after Vietnam for this under 301. But we still are waiting for USTR uh, to to really make a determination. Um, now, what's important to note is that there's a deadline for that, uh, which is October. And under the 301 statute, you're required within 12 months to decide, you know, is there a breach and what are you going to do about it? And USTR has already decided that the Vietnam's currency policies violated 301, but they haven't yet announced what they're going to do about it. Um, and so if they want to preserve the option to keep doing tariffs, they need to make that announcement by October Uh October 2nd, I believe. And so, you know, they will need to say whether this deal is sufficient or not by that time. Now, everyone does need to remember, however, that there is another investigation out there on Vietnam um, in related to some of their environmental practices, uh, which, you know, has the same deadline, but where they they have not even made a determination one way or another on whether there's there's a breach of the statute, um, let alone what a remedy could be. But that's another thing to watch on Vietnam. Thanks for that update, Cleet, and thank you for keeping your eye on the other uh, piece of that puzzle as well. I should mention here that GBA has joined a multi-association effort, uh, including a letter to the administration opposing any further tariffs under the Section 301 investigation. So we will be keeping members apprised of anything else that comes in this space uh, as this moves forward and, and moves towards that October deadline that Cleet just mentioned. Let's pivot to Europe, where there has been a lot of news recently at the G20, specifically around the agreement uh, towards a global minimum tax on corporations uh, that has been set at 15%. Um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of momentum around this piece, and we know that the OECD is planning to meet again in October to release some more uh, technical details as to how it might be implemented. GBA has been doing a ton of work in this space on the tax front, but Cleet, I would really like to get your thoughts on what this means on the trade front. I know there's been a concern that if the OECD efforts towards a global minimum tax were to fail, that we would see uh, significant retaliatory tariffs uh, against various digital service taxes that have been popping up all around the world moving forward. And uh, would love to get your thoughts on that. Thanks, Kevin, for the, for the question on the OECD. And I think it's it's interesting the way that you phrased it, which is, you know, if the OECD falls apart, then we have a trade war. Um, I would say my primary concern right now is almost that the OECD is going to succeed and it won't stave off um, some of the tensions between the U.S. and the EU. And, and let me explain. I, I think the Biden administration has done a really good job in terms of changing the dynamic in those talks. And if you remember where we were um, at the end of the Trump administration, it was a little bit of a staring contest where the um, you know, the U.S. had basically said, you know, we're not going to engage on pillar one unless it's essentially under a safe harbor type framework. And Europe basically said, we're only going to scope uh, pillar one so that it focuses on, on digital companies, which are predominantly American. Now, uh, Secretary Yellen made a big move and said, look, uh, we're no longer going to take that position vis-a-vis uh, -vis the sort of optionality of, of, of Pillar 1. Um, and, and that did then induce the Europeans uh, to basically open up and say, OK, we'll come up with a solution that is scoped such that it isn't only applying to American companies. And, and I think that's actually going to probably get them across the finish line. Now, it's important to note, you know, there's been a couple high level statements at the G7, G20 you know, confirming these principles, that isn't yet the final text, but that all does seem to be trending well. But my concern here um, is that as good of a job as the Biden administration has done in working with Europe, it doesn't seem like they necessarily have their whole house in order in the United States. And um, most folks who have looked at this think 
that the pillar one element of this, and, and, and there are differing opinions in pillar two, but on pillar one, the predominant view is that the U.S. would have to um, have the Senate pass it as a treaty uh-huh. um, because it does um, change global tax principles in a way that's inconsistent with existing bilateral tax treaty that the United States has. Um, But it doesn't seem like we're anywhere close to a universe where, um, you know, the the Democratic-led Congress is going to pass uh, a tax um, portion of of their infrastructure package as a a pay-for, you know, either um, under regular order or as a reconciliation matter, and then turn around and do a bunch of tax treaties. And so it's hard for me to see how the U.S. implements this um, domestically in, in in any sort of reasonable time frame. And then the problem you have is that if the U.S. doesn't implement it domestically, the Europeans are going to keep collecting digital services taxes, and that's going to continue to uh, invoke the ire of, 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 of tech companies, as well as you know some of the folks who aren't happy about those policies in Congress, including both the uh, Democratic chair and Republican ranking member of the Senate Finance Committee. So I'm a little worried uh, that you're going to have an OECD deal but actually not have a solution to this global irritant. And I think, you know, what I hope would happen is both that um, Secretary Yellen and her team, you know, figures out a strategy working with Congress, but also figures out a strategy where the Europeans will back off on collecting those DSTs um, in the interim, because I think that could be a little bit of a combustible mix. So next question I want to ask you is, is also somewhat in the tax space and, and uh, straddling the line with, between tax and trade, and that is regarding carbon tariff proposals. Now, this is something that I believe we have seen proposals in both the EU and now in the United States. There's been at least some talk of an idea of, of including this in, in a, a reconciliation package that, that might be moving through Congress. But these are basically tariffs that would exist on um, certain types of industries that are known to be polluters to try to disincentivize uh, companies from moving polluting activities out of highly regu- regulated environments or countries where the standards um, might be uh, might be higher as far as environmental concerns is, is in play um, to some sort of lower place and then selling back into that jurisdiction. So, Cleet, where do you think that these things are going and, and where do they sit now? Yeah, well, look, I, I got to confess, this is going to be something I think we're going to be talking about for the next <laughs> three to five years. Um, you know, I think there is a growing uh, viewpoint um, certainly uh, in Europe and I think to to a, to a lesser extent, but significant in the U.S., especially on the left, um, about the need to strengthen our environmental uh, regulations to deal with climate change, but then also to do something at the border uh, to induce other countries to adopt stronger environmental measures and to avoid carbon leakage um, as we as we reduce emissions in our countries. And the problem with this stuff is that there's really no way to do it um, that doesn't impose a significant cost on, on importers. And you know, let me start with the U.S. proposal and then I'll turn over to Europe. I mean, the, the, the problem with the U.S. is basically, um, you know, we're going to put a tariff at the border 
that is meant to be um, somewhat consistent with the amount of money that uh, domestic uh, companies have to pay to comply with U.S. environmental regulations. And there's a very complicated formula included in the piece of legislation that's floating around on the Hill. And just to give people context, uh, this is something the Democrats are looking at as part of their um, budget resolution and are saying that it would uh, 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 affect roughly 12 percent of imports, raise about $16 billion. It would apply um, to you know what I would say are both construction materials like steel, aluminum, cement, as well as to um, you know sources of, of fuel, so petroleum, natural gas, and things like that. So just to get that out of the way, but the way that it's set up is basically that they would calculate you know in in the U.S. what is the general cost of of complying with environmental regulations in those areas, and then through a somewhat complicated formula that a lot of us are still trying to understand, um, then would come up with a number that they would tariff um, other countries. And the problem with this, and the reason why it's it really won't pass muster in this iteration with the WTO, is that there really isn't any way for other countries to get complete credit for their own environmental regulations. So you're always going to have the situation where other countries are both having to pay to comply with their environmental regulations, and then they're going to be hit at the border order in the U.S., um, and I think the WTO is pretty clearly going to say that that is not fair, um, that is not um, permitted, that it's less favorable treatment vis-a-vis those imports. Because just to give you the example, um, the EU, you know, basically if you're importing something from the EU, it's not clear under the, the democratic proposal that you get any credit um, for how much you're paying to comply with EU environmental regulations, which some argue are even more stringent than ours. Now, the EU is trying to do it in a slightly different way, um, and their proposal is part of what they're calling their Fit for 55 package, um, which um, I think refers to the 55% emissions reduction that they want um, by 2030. But basically what they've done um, is they've made a better attempt, I would say, at trying to equalize domestic and, and, and import ports and the way that you treat them. And the way that they do it is they have a certificate process where you get credits um, for, for carbon emissions. And then you, you know, you basically, whether or not you're domestic or foreign, you would, you would pay. They have a price for carbon that they adjust against. And so basically they can say they're adjusting against the same price domestically or um, internationally. And so there's sort of a, a, a metric that everyone agrees on that everyone pays and they can try to make everyone pay the same thing. Now, where I think they're going to get in trouble at the WTO and certainly with developing countries is that they're requiring um, folks in in foreign markets to basically set up a system where they either get accredited by the EU or have their own system of determining sort of what the cost is of, 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 of what they're doing, what, what their actual cost of carbon is, and then they have to adjust that at the border. And again, this is really complicated stuff. So if you don't understand what I'm talking about, you're not alone. <laughs> but the bottom line is there's going to be a heavy cost of compliance for folks around the world who don't have carbon pricing in their domestic markets. And the EU, basically companies are going to be able to rely on the internal system and that cost differential is going to be extreme, especially for the developing world. And they're going to say it's a de facto less favorable treatment and it's inconsistent with the WTO. 
Mm-hmm. And so where I end all of this with is you've got two proposals out there from two leading countries at the WTO, both of which have some problems at the WTO, which if implemented as designed would likely lead to a heck of a lot of litigation, potential tariffs flying around among a lot of different countries. And the only way out of that is you actually have to come up with some sort of international negotiation about what's fair in this space. And that certainly is going to take time. And that's why I think we're just at the very beginning of this and we're going to be talking about this for years to come as these various measures evolve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, agreed. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, appreciate the the good overview there and uh, new new issues for us to continue to wrap up. One final question for you, Clayton. I know that we, we've covered more topics on this than we generally do in these podcasts, but I do really appreciate your insight on all of these. Um, you know, it's an easy one. What is Congress going to do? Uh, we're, we're, we're recording this on Wednesday, July 21st, and uh, we are currently expecting that there's going to be a cloture vote in the Senate on the bipartisan infrastructure bill that is likely to not pass. And then there's some, some back and forth going on between Republicans and Democrats of what that means for next steps. But I know many of our listeners have um, a vested interest in the bill in the infrastructure bill, also in the reconciliation bill that that is somewhat attached to it moving forward on a partisan basis. And there are trade implications, potential domestic procurement preference uh, changes in any infrastructure package moving forward. So, um, Cleet, uh, I'm sure you know what's going to happen. So what's going to happen? Well, let me look in my crystal ball. Um, (laughs) Everyone's favorite parlor game in Washington is what's going to happen with infrastructure. Um, Look, I I love bipartisanship and I wish I could be more uh, bullish on on a bipartisan deal. But I think the pay fors are just going to ultimately be, you know, too hard uh, to agree upon. And so I think ultimately that is going to fail. And then we are going to move into um, more of a, a, a a partisan reconciliation process. Um, I suspect that something will get done on that basis. Uh, I think, you know, this is this is Biden's number one item. This is Nancy Pelosi's legacy item. Uh, so I think they will ultimately pass something. Um, I, I think it'll probably get scaled back um, from this four billion, you know, sort of top line number. I think some of the moderates on the Democratic side are going to going to need it to be smaller than that, and they're not going to want to um, include the number of tax increases that would be required to get there. So I think that's where we're heading in terms of the content, and you know, does the Buy America stuff get in there? Um, you know, I think that some of it will, and 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 that is going to be something that we all need to pay really close attention to um, in the months ahead, because I think that right now, for 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 better or for worse, and probably for worse for a lot of your members, um, you know, those provisions are incredibly popular right now, and 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 I just don't see the U.S. Congress passing this package um, without something that says some proportion of this is going to be required, uh, you know, to be done domestically because that really just is consistent with, you know, the Biden administration's priorities, uh, which I think many in Congress do share. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that, Cleet. Thank you again for your insight on all these topics. There's a lot going on, as we mentioned at the top of the podcast, but it's always a pleasure to have you on. And uh, we we do appreciate it. And meanwhile, anybody listening to this podcast, if you have questions for Cleet or want to follow up on any of these topics, please let me know. You can reach out to to me at GBA and I will get you in touch with Cleet. So thanks, everyone. And thanks again, Cleet. Great. Thank you for having me.